Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 88. Do your research, find out, set some goals of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do, and you know, hear opinions and experiences from other people that have been doing it a lot longer than you have. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal. Hardage. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet, to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Webb Doolin. He is a farmer in Maryland. We talked about his journey in high-priced land with grass-fed beef and what he's doing. I think you'll really enjoy it. Let's talk to Webb. Webb, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Yeah, Cal, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Webb, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And your operation. Yeah, I'm here located in Cordova, Maryland, which is on the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, people that aren't familiar with the area, we're actually on a, a peninsula that sits between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean, so a little bit of a unique area. It's a pretty large watershed here, so actually I think the Chesapeake Bay has one of the larger watersheds in the country. So there's a lot of focus on the bay in this area, um, the, the health of the bay with runoff and pollution and from sediment, topsoil and excess nutrients and that thing. So agriculture has always been had to work in tune with efforts to keep the bay healthy and clean for the, the seafood and that stuff. My family's been farming for several generations now, mostly crop farming. So when I grew up as a kid, my grandfather, he, he had a herd of black Angus cows. And so that's kind of where I fell in love with raising cattle. And so I, I did some 4-H thing as a child and showed some steers and that kind of stuff. But when I was younger, it seemed like most the farms around here are a little bit smooth. You know, our uh, geography here, uh, there's a lot of water and the farms are broken up. So there's not the wide open land that you would see out in your area in the West or Midwest. Um, so <clears throat> it used to be where everyone here had a little bit of everything. They, they raised some crops, but they had a couple of dairy oh, yeah. cows or they had a couple of beef cows and pigs and that kind of stuff. And that's going by the wayside a little bit, but that's how it used to be. Um, so that's how I, I got into the livestock as a child. But, but now it's really transitioned to 
uh, our area is probably 90% real crop farming, corn, soybeans, wheat. Um, and it's very few beef uh, cattle operations and there's still a few dairies left. Um, and we do, we actually are a pretty popular chicken industry here as well. But yeah, so the livestock, uh, something I always had a kind of a passion for. And uh, I went away to college and I came back home and my father and I run a business together as well. And I have a couple other businesses that I'm involved in. Uh, but we had the opportunity came available. We, he has a farm that's about 100 acres and I have an adjacent property that's another 16 acres. Uh, so we're 116 acres here, uh, but we have about 75 acres in pasture now uh, and about seven or eight of that is in Silvo pasture. So the opportunity came about, I guess it was 2017. Uh, we were, we had a little bit of pasture at the farm that we were leasing uh, to a guy that was raising sheep. And uh, then the rest we had in crops. Uh, and that gentleman ended up getting out of the business and the pastures uh, became vacant. So uh, I decided I wanted to go ahead and try to raise some cows for myself. Uh, so that's where it started. First off, when I think about the area of Maryland, I don't think of agriculture. So it's unique to hear about that. And you mentioned it's predominantly rural crops. Do you have a lot of urban sprawl into the area or is it small farms next to each other? Yeah, we do. It's So that's what makes the Eastern Shore unique. It's kind of, we're almost, as, although we're Maryland, it's almost like we're a separate state because we're very different from uh, what we call the Western Shore where DC, Baltimore, those areas oh, yeah. are, they're very more, they're more urban and we're, it's the economy over here has always been based around agriculture and seafood. There's a lot of watermen, local watermen here and small business, you know, so it's, the, uh, the real estate is very expensive because we're only an, oh, an hour, we're an hour so. from DC, we're an hour from Baltimore, two hours from Philadelphia, three hours from New York city. So there's a lot of access and a lot of people have from the cities have weekend properties here. And, and of course, the waterfront property makes has good value, so it, it raises oh, yes. the property values pretty high. Um, but yeah, the, you know the farms that the, the development continues to grow. We lose a little bit of farmland every year. It seems like to uh, housing developments and construction and some commercial growth and things like that. But you know we're holding on the best we can. There, there is a the goal is to keep it in ag you know, perpetuity. So uh, that's something that a lot of people are striving for. You are fairly close to D.C. and other big cities in that region? Yes, yeah, so we're only an hour from D.C. and Baltimore and two hours from Philadelphia, three hours from New York City. Uh, so we do get a lot of those people with weekend homes and people that retire from that area. So there's quite a bit of wealth in this region um, and as well as a, a good consumer base with some wealth as well, which makes it good for the beef side of things as far as selling beef Oh, so when you decided in, I think, was it about 2017 you got started with the cattle? Yes, yep, started my herd in 2017. Did you decide at that point you're like, I'm going grass-fed? Yeah, so honestly, it happened. I've always, like I said, I always had a passion for farming and livestock and something. raising cattle was something I've always wanted to do. But I was always told growing up that there's no money in it. It's not a way that you can make a living. Oh, you have right. to have other income. So I started researching, is there a way to make profit raising cattle? And as I started to come across grass-fed and, you know, regenerative agriculture is a new thing. And I just started, found Greg Judy and Jim Garrish and some of the bigger names that most of these people listening probably have heard or followed. 
um, oh, yeah. and, and starting to listen to their talks and podcasts and YouTube videos and hearing how the, it was possible to make a living off of raising cattle, I found it very intriguing. And then it's one of those few things that, that I've found in life where it, it seemed like uh, the regenerative agriculture and grass-fed cattle and stuff is a win-win situation every way you look at it, which is pretty rare. But it's, it can be profitable for the producer. Uh, it's good for the health and quality of life of the animals. It's beneficial and positive outcome for the land. We can heal the land, build the soil, and help improve the environment. It just seemed like there was, it was all good, which is rare. There's always, it seems like something always, good things always come at a cost of something else. But this is just one of those things where it seemed like oh, I couldn't yeah. find a downside to it. So I went all in on it. When did you go all, all in on it? Luckily, it's, I didn't have a history of conventional raising livestock other than my grandfather in some ways. What I learned from him as a young child, when he got out of the cattle business when I was a teenager. So there wasn't too many like bad habits ingrained in me so i was able to jump in both feet and i was all all in and on board with the regenerative and grass-fed thing right from the beginning i didn't have any bad habits to try to break after listening to a lot of different points of views and the just all the benefits that seemed to come with it it just seemed like a no-brainer that's and so far it's it's been great you can definitely see the it's something you can see the improvements even within a year or two years three years and they just keep compounding and keep getting better and grow exponentially but it's just one of those things that you almost see improvement right from the start oh yes it is and did you when you got started did you have to go in and do some infrastructure changes for that or how did you get started just doing rotations and going forward yeah so we had some like i said we had some of our about half the farm was set up in pasture before and it was actually originally designed for we were going to board horses there so the, oh, we, we okay. had high tensile fencing and we had some water infrastructure but you know we had i had to do some for doing the rotational grazing i started out i tried to do this from the beginning with that i didn't have a lot of money to invest in it from the start so i started small just a couple cows and and i had some of the poly braid, cheap poly braid that I bought, and I had the extension cord reels that some you've seen some people use. Oh it, yes, they're not very efficient and not very easy to work with, but they got the job done. So that that's where I started. Right, and just you, you learn along the way different tricks and different ways to be efficient and things that work better. And as you get a little money, you can improve things as you go. But I tried to start as debt free as I could and try and start small and grow my herd myself. So I did most of my own breeding and retained most of my heifers and stuff. I didn't really buy in a, a ton of cows, so I didn't have a lot of uh, capital in, invested in the beginning, so I just built on itself. And the, the downside of that for some people maybe it takes a few years. There's not much cash flow. It took about three years to really see any kind of income, and it's so, oh, so, there's, so there's positive and negatives. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of capital involved and no debt to start with, but, uh, but it took a few years to really see any kind of income. Right, and that's one of the big issues with getting started with cow-calf. Before you have a marketable product, it's quite a while. So, it's always good to have a little bit of income coming in some way to get you to that point. Sure. Now, when you started with your cows, did you know right off you were going with the breed you went with? Yeah, in my area, like I said, the beef industry is pretty small. There's not a lot of people in the cattle business where I'm located. And uh, so the registered Herefords is where I started. 
there's a little bit of a market here for those that kind of there's more hobby farmers here that raise the show cattle for the higher ends registered that need to be propped up they need to, they need to cabin in a barn and be fed supplements and all that kind of stuff and i didn't know any better so that's where i started and i always i had some experience with herfords as a child and i knew there were always had good disposition and stuff so and i had little kids so that's what towards that breed but as i learned and over time and working on getting my cow size down frame size down be more grass efficient and there's a lot of people may say i know there's the south pole will get very popular they seem like a very good breed for the grass oh, yeah. grass thing and several others like that but i think the herefords can do just as well that people you know that aren't in the cattle industry knock them maybe for like their beef quality and stuff but it, i think within every breed you can make some amazing finished beef products if you do it right and get the right genetics it's not about the color of the animal it's more about your management and the way that you finish them so we've had a lot of success even with the herfers and our customers seem to be really happy with the beef quality and we're always trying to improve i've actually i just bought a red devon bull this year that we're going to mix in and try to because i know that the devons are really known for grass efficiency and some quality beef so we're going to okay. try to mix that into our genetics and see how that i'm excited to see how that turns out Oh, yeah. I'm interested to see how that cross goes. You hit on a very important point there. No matter what breed you're working with the right selection, you can get it closer to what you need. There's lots of people that's big fans of Southpaws. People, I've told on the podcast my story about Angus and why I don't like him, but it's just a, it's a superficial story. But whatever breed you're working with, you can select the right genetics and work it towards what you're wanting and you're working towards that grass fed so i'm interested to see what the red devon does we talked about red devon a little bit and my dad went to a show and looked at him and he did not come away from it thinking he wanted any of those but he you have to remember he went as a mindset of a limousine breeder so he hasn't fully adjusted. We're working on cow size for him. For me, I'm used to, I'm wanting a smaller, moderate-sized cow, and I'm still fascinated by Red Devon and what they can do. So I'm interested to see how that works out for you. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It came from, there's a local Red Devon breeder in southwestern Pennsylvania, Four Seasons Farm, I believe is the name. That's where we got the bull from. There's, so there's them, and then there's another one in oh, yes. central Virginia. They're a real popular well-known Devon breeders so yeah I'm excited to see oh yes what happens with it and it's I try a lot of things I'm not afraid to try things if it doesn't work out we can it's not gonna be that we can end of the world we can go another direction but if it we may find that if we get any improvement at all I'm all for it so I'm not I'm not afraid to try different things and I think that's a huge part of uh, regenerative agriculture and grass-fed and all of that is that you can't be stuck in any way that every year can be different and every situation can be different and you got to be able to adapt and, and be willing to try things change things and one thing that may have worked one year or that you thought was the best thing may not be the next year and you just you can't have you got to put your pride aside and just go with what you think you try to adapt and as soon as you think you have it figured out you learn really quick you don't on getting started part of your land was already in pasture did you find your forage quality worked for you or did you go in and seed anything 
do anything different with what you had there already? Yeah, so fortunately, our pastures were in pretty good condition because they were, it was just being grazed by sheep. Prior to me having cattle there, it was not, the grazing pressure wasn't very hard on the pastures for the past five, ten oh, years. Yeah. So it, they actually were in pretty decent shape. And the guy that was raising sheep, he did move them around. They did, did they weren't set stocked in the pasture year after year. So that helped as well. He wasn't, it didn't do the type of intensive grazing that I do, but it, at least it was better than just right. throwing them out there and them just continuous grazing. So yeah, I started with decent pasture in that area. And then the other half of the farm was in crops, like I said, and so I converted that just a few years ago from cropland to pasture. And that's been... Uh, it's taken some time for sure. The organic matter and the condition of the soil definitely is not as healthy as the pasture land was. And make no mistake, we've made improvements to the pasture land as well, but it, it didn't have as far to go as the cropland for, from continuous fertilizers and herbicides, pesticides, all that stuff. They're just, uh, there was a lot more room for improvement there. And we've seen improvement. We started, I think, with my soil tests in the first year we were at maybe 2% organic matter, and now we're up to four and a half, five percent 5% on a lot of it. So, oh, yes. So, uh, you know, we're making yeah. a lot of improvement, and I've been happy with it. We, when we started, when we converted the cropland in the beginning, I seeded it. The, so fall is the best time here to establish any type of grasses from, from seed. Uh, so planted it in, in pasture in the fall, and then we really let it in the spring develop and we just took hay off of it in the spring and early summer and never really put animals on it until it established the following fall so about a year of growth there we actually put any animal pressure on it which i think helped get a good start yeah i'm sure that helped out greatly what grasses did you seed it in so here we're primarily a cool season grass base we did fescue orchard grass rye grass and then we have red and white clover as well um, and we did our, the natural fescue here is the endophyte infected fescue, which you hear a lot of people talk about, but we did seed of the, what we planted new, we put a variety of, it's a modified endophyte fescue, which is non-toxic to the cattle. So it's supposed to be an improved version. And I think, oh, yeah. I don't know, they say that without the endophyte, that the grass, the fescue is not quite as hardy. It can't really handle droughts and stuff as well as the endophyte infected, but I haven't seen a ton of difference. And I don't know, it's still, we've only been at it for a few years, so it's, I'm no expert in it, but, but it, we haven't had much issue. It seems fine to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. And just for reference, how long's your winter? How cold does it get there? So usually our frost dates seem like it's pushed back in the past few years. It's typically early October, but it seems now more like the end of October before we really get a hard frost. And then we usually were back to grazing April 1st is when I like to get started. And that's not a hard day, but that's just an average oh, when, when we can get back to grazing. I usually try to, when we get a little bit of warmer weather, I like to give it a week or two to really get the grass going before we try to start strip grazing and get a tense on it. So we still feed hay for probably a week or so after the weather warms up in the spring. But usually by April 1st, we're back to the to grazing and when to stop eating hay. Oh yeah, very good. And are you able to stockpile forages for winter grazing? Yeah, fortunately we're in a pretty good area for that. We have a cool uh, 
temperature-wise, and we usually get some pretty good precipitation in the fall. So we, I try to stockpile as much as possible, and I'm still still a work in progress. I'd like to get through, obviously, as much of winter as I could on stockpile. I'm more limited right now just by the sheer yeah. number of acres I have. But we typically, the past couple of years, we've made it till about New Year's or so before we start feeding hay. So we're feeding hay. Oh, yeah. We're feeding hay close to 90 days, which isn't terrible, but I'd like to get it down to 30 to 60 days. I think that would help a lot for sure. I talked to a gentleman today. We have, for my dad's herd, we have not fed any hay. We will make it into the new year without feeding hay. For my herd, I fed just a little bit of hay. But I'm moving them this weekend to a different property, and I won't have to do much hay for another month. But I talked to a gentleman today. He's been feeding hay since September. Now, he's been in a dry area. He's only, I don't know, 45 minutes from me. And he hasn't got the rainfall I've gotten. It's been dry up in that area. But, man, feeding hay since September, that costs some money. Yeah, absolutely. It does. That's, that's when I break things down on a per head basis of a cost per year of keeping a cow per year, hay by far is the most expensive factor in that. So if you're trying to cut cost, I'd say that's the number one thing you can do. But uh, on the same token, I've, I've heard a lot, I think Jim Garrish talks about it some, but there there is, I think, a tipping point. On a, when you're on a smaller scale like mine, where you're trying to maximize the amount of acres you have, where... There's a fine line. I could run 10 cows and then I wouldn't have to feed hay all winter if I was stocked that low. But there's a certain point where feeding hay makes sense from a profitability standpoint. If I can increase my herd a certain amount and feed hay for 60 days, that's more profitable than if I cut my herd down to 10 and never fed hay. You know what I mean? So in the end, the overall profitability, there's a middle ground there. And that probably changes depending on where you are. But like I said, trying to maximize what we can do on a small acreage there's it's probably going to be pretty unlikely that we ever get to feeding zero hay yeah i would love to get there eventually but you raise a good point if we lowered our cow numbers enough we could get to that point of not feeding any hay a lot faster but our profitability or money coming in would really take a hit yeah absolutely it's a balancing act there yeah with your pastures, you had some are in pasture, you had some row crop land that you seeded and got going, and in, in addition to that, you have some silvo pasture as well? Yes, correct. So we took uh, about well, 30 acres of the farm is mature hardwoods, and most around here it's mostly oak, maple, poplar, that sort of timber. So we took, and really my most of my pastures, have, they have no trees or anything for shade at all, other than in the morning and afternoon when you get the shade casting off the adjacent woods. So, and we do in the summer, we don't have extreme heat here in the summer, but we have high humidity. So even when we get a lot of days in the 90s, oh, yeah. a lot of days in the 90s, the heat index is well over 100, 110. So it's tough on the cows. The humidity really brings them down sometimes. So shade was something that we were trying to establish. And I was intrigued by some other people I'd seen with silver pasture. It was a way for us to, once again, on small acreage, try to maximize the amount of land that we had to raise cattle and maybe increase our herd size. Uh, so it gave us some additional pasture and shade. It is a, 
benefit to the animal and a benefit to our operation. We went in and about on a couple of the pastures are adjacent to the woods and we we harvested some timber in those and thinned them out, left left some of the really took out the diseased and dead trees and the ones that were oh, not yeah. doing well and left the stronger, mature, mostly oaks and some maple and things like that. Took out some of the trees that they say are toxic to cattle, like cherry trees, and walnut, and that kind of stuff. But we we thinned those out so they could get some sunlight, and then we did the same thing in the fall season. We seeded some orchard grass and fescue and stuff in there, and let it establish. And it's it's going well. It's a little bit slow for the grasses to develop because it is a change in the dynamic of the soil, where you're going from a very like fungal environment to where the pasture is more so back bacterial heavy soil. So there's spots that are thick and some spots that are thin and we're getting the fertility in there with the cows now and it's establishing more and more. So it's every year it seems to be getting a little better. When you went in there to establish it and you went through and you cleared out some less desirable species of trees and you cleared out some trees that weren't as healthy, did you have a goal in mind of like how many trees you wanted per acre or you just do it by fill? Kind of by feel, so, and we worked with some professional timber harvesters and they got some information from them as well, but because one of the things they said, we thinned it out a little thinner than you would think that you want it because with the trees oh, yeah. in, in a dense, mature forest setting like that, they're a little bit, com they're competing and they're confined in the way that they are, but once you thin it out, their canopies over the next couple of years actually spread a lot further than what they currently are. So there will be more shade cover in, so in a couple of years after thinning it than there currently is. So, so, so sometimes yeah. I mean, when you immediately do it, it seems probably thinner than you would think you need it, but it will grow back in and the canopy will fill in more over time. And one thing with the civil pasture and going the other way, you mentioned some of your other pastures does not have very many trees. Have you thought about planting more trees in those areas? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I am trying to do. I've, there's a few, there's a couple of companies in our area that actually specialize in that. I think there's a guy in Pennsylvania, I think it's called Trees for Grazers is what it, if you've heard, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Yeah, he was on the podcast, I would say episode, I'm guessing, so I'm probably wrong on the number, but I would say around episode 15. Okay. But yeah, so that's something we're interested in and we're trying to work on seeing if there's any type of where there, you would think in an area like ours where, you know, with the bay and stuff, there's some programs that are with funding for planting trees and establishing trees and things like that to help with erosion oh, yeah. and, and that stuff. Really. But uh, we haven't quite nailed that down yet and we haven't quite nailed down exactly what species we want to grow and the supplier for that. There's just a kind of a lot of moving parts that we're trying to work out and working on like the other concern I have is working on limited acres. I know for that first few years where we plant those trees, we're going to have to exclude the livestock. So it's going to cut us back oh, acres yeah. for the first couple of years, which I guess is just the, one of the things you have to do. But so yeah, we're, we definitely want to, we're still working on it. Yeah. And that'll introduce some more challenges to you, especially as you try and get those trees established, but it'll be a worthwhile goal to to be reaching for when you got started you started with a few animals did you take some of those first calves you produced and take them all the way to processing 
Yeah, so when I originally started, I started as a cow-calf operation, and like I said, with the registered herfers, that was my angle, was that I was going to sell uh, replacement heifers and maybe have a few bulls for seed stock and that kind of thing, because there's, like I said, a fair market here for those animals. And then oh, yeah. as the timing, almost the way it worked out with COVID and stuff, we happened not long after we got started, a couple of years, 2019, I guess it was, um, and so I finished a couple steers for, kept one for the family, just for ourselves. And, uh, and then the local demand when COVID started for, for meat products, locally raised meat products, when you couldn't, the inventory, the grocery stores were low and people were panicking. The local meat industry really it took off and it was like perfect timing to get oh, into yeah. the business. And as we started to go down that road, I never had a grass finished animal myself. We were, we were raised on grain fed beef. It was just like most people. And so I had my apprehensions to it as well. Was this going to taste good? Are people going to like it? So that's why we finished the first one for ourselves before we were going to offer it to the public to make sure that it was something we were happy with selling. And to be honest with you, it, we thought it was great and couldn't tell the difference from any other beef we'd had in the past. So that's when I really became a believer that, hey, this is something we can do and it's gonna, we're going to be able to put out a quality product that's going to be sellable. Uh, so we dove right into it. And as the beef business has grown, my, my business model has really transitioned to where I, we're going to primarily be a grass finishing cattle operation as opposed to the cow calf. And on a limited acreage, I think we can actually be more profitable or be the most profitable if every acre we use is more dedicated to finishing a grass fed animal as opposed to oh, yeah. calving a grass, calving an animal. So. I still want to keep a few mama cows and, and do the cow calf thing just because it's something I enjoy and it's in me. But from a profitability standpoint, right. I think we're going to transition more to. Uh, I found a connection with the guy we're going to try in Virginia who's has about 300 mama cows and uh, he's on the same path that we're on and believes in the same values and same processes as we're doing. So we're probably going to start a partnership with him and let him do more of the cow calf and we're going to, cause he has more of the land base to do that with. And we're going to try to utilize more of our acres for just finishing. We'll get them in as yearlings and finish them out for the next 18, 24 months, whatever it is. Um, and uh, that seems to be on, like, on, like I said, on our limited acreage, I think that's going to probably give us the most profit breaker that we can get. I think you have a valid point there on, on specializing in that because you can bring in more per acre. But my next question was going to be, have you sourced these out? Are you going to be able to find what you need? But it sounds like you found someone to work with to help ease that transition and give you a pipeline of quality animals to work with. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna try it out. Like I said, this will be our first year doing it. I've always, everything that we've sold has always been born and finished right on our farm. We've never bought in any animals for that. So... And like I said, we're still, we still will have a few and the beef business is growing enough. We're at capacity now and we could definitely use more. I'd like to expand the operation, but we need more land. And at a certain point, if we're ever able to acquire enough land, I think what we'll do is can continue to grow, use as many acres as we need to meet the demand of the beef business. And then beyond that is yes. when it would make sense to have cow calves to raise, to calve our own supply so that's probably down the road but until we get there like i said i think it's for us it's more efficient and more profitable to 
have someone else that has those acres to do the cow-calf thing, and then it, it, we, it makes sense for us to utilize every acre we can to finish the animals. Oh, yes. How are you marketing your animals now? So everything pretty much, I'm a little bit younger, so I do social media, so I'm not crazy with it, but I do, social media is pretty big for us. We have a website and an online presence and all that, but everything is sold direct to consumer right off the farm. We don't have any storefronts or anything like that, Um, but just staying on top of Facebook, Instagram, our website, emails, and things like that. And I've tried some physical advertising with some flyers in different places. And I don't think they haven't had a lot of success. Um, oh, the yeah. online the online presence really helps. And I, actually, the most productive marketing we've done. So Facebook in different areas, there's a lot of like towns or regions have groups specifically for that area. So you can join a group that's... Yes. Uh, Annapolis, Maryland, or whatever. And so that then the local people really follow those pages pretty strongly. So we do our advertising on those different towns nearby close to us. And that's, I'd say, more than half of our business comes directly from that. We, when we have products available, we post on there. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and people contact us that are within 10 miles. Or, and that, that seems to be our biggest selling point right now. Have you participated in any farmer's markets or has it all been through social media? Yeah, we have not done farmer's markets. It's all been directly from either the website or social media or word of mouth. Yes. You know, and it's, uh, I think there's good and bad at farmer's markets. They can definitely help some people get exposure and get your name out there. And I'm not saying there's anything bad or wrong with farmer's markets. For me, I have other businesses that I'm involved with and I have three and I don't have, I just don't have the time to take up weekends sitting at a farmer's market, not knowing what's going to sell, what to take, you know, I just, I don't have a lot of experience with it and I don't have the time to put into it. And I don't think it's profitable to pay someone to spend their time doing it for me. I think in some areas for some people, it's probably a great thing for me. It's just, I don't have I don't have any trouble selling what I have now, so it just, I don't need to. It's, it makes way more sense for oh, me yeah. to do it through online presence and social media and stuff than actually physically going to farmer's markets. If it came to the point where I had a freezer full of beef that I couldn't sell, then sure, I'd probably be out there trying to sell it more and pushing it at farmer's markets and stuff. But right now, we haven't had that issue. And we are, we're finally, like I said, we're trying to scale a little more, and we're trying to partner with a few. We have some local, small shops like artisanal food meat type of shops that are interested in selling local products meats and we're trying to work on some relationships with those people and i think that could be big for us that could probably double or triple us almost instantly so it's just working out the logistics with them those type of places need a constant supply year-round for the most part and obviously we don't butcher year-round right now we butcher two to three times a year, especially because we calve our own and we, we're not going to calve all year long. Um, it just doesn't fit our model right now. But, uh, so we're, we're trying to work out, we're having those conversations and trying to work out those things, but I think there's potential there. For me personally, and if I'm happy to hear other people's opinions or if, what other people that have done this to try to grow beyond just the direct-to-consumer, maybe get into more some more wholesale, but I felt like the small shops and stuff were a better route to start as opposed to restaurants. I haven't broken into the restaurant world yet, and I'm not sure whether we will, how that would work. I feel like there's a lot of challenges and complications that come with that. So until as long as our demand's there as we are, I think that's probably our last 
branch that we'll reach into in the future. Oh, yes, yeah. And that sounds reasonable. Webb, before we get to the overgrazing section, a couple more things. Just one, what has been a challenge or a couple of challenges that you've came across that you didn't anticipate? A lot. There's there's always a different challenge. <laughs> there's it's it's never easy. Like you like we said before, it's, sometimes you think you have it figured out, but you're usually wrong. But there's just a lot to learn along the way. There's different environmental conditions. Some years we've had two or three years ago, our average rainfall here is about 45 inches a year, which is good. We can grow quite a bit of forage. Um, but I think it was three years ago, maybe 20, maybe 2020, we had over 75 inches of rainfall that year. So, and we have, we have pretty heavy soils here. So trying to rotate cows and stuff and not damage your soil we had very wet and just like you can't find dry ground so you try to increase your paddock size to do a little less damage and get recovery and stuff but that's challenging especially in the winter time when it gets wet in the winter it doesn't dry it's you don't want to pug up your whole farm and then come spring it'll come back strong eventually but for those first couple months in the spring you got to have somewhere to graze and some grass to graze so you try to limit the damage you do in the short term there so that's been a challenge for us sometimes, but and, and trying to think, like I said, it really maximizing the acres that we have, it's, it's a fine balance. It's hard to, we have plenty of grass in the spring, summer, fall, and most summers. We haven't really, we've been lucky enough in the past, since we started our herd, we haven't had like a super strong drought in the summer so far, oh, but yeah. uh, it's trying to establish enough stockpile to get through the most winter that you can, but uh, at the same time, you know, that's the issue I've found is we're our area, they figure on average of like two acres per cow is like the average stocking rate. Um, we can push that on a good year down to like an acre and a half. But uh, so trying to maximize the number of cows we can have, but it, when we're trying to stockpile as much as we can in the fall for the winter, we don't have enough leftover pasture for that 60 to 90 days where you want to stockpile. We don't have enough pasture to put them on aside from that during that time. We don't have 60 or 90 days oh, yeah. worth of pasture aside from the stockpile to be on. So I'm trying to figure that whole thing out. What's the best thing to do there? And if we're trying to maybe find some more land or pasture that we can lease where while we're stockpiling our farm, we could have them over there for 60 days or something like that. But it's just a balancing act. And like I said, so finding what, Maybe here feeding hay for 60 to 90 days isn't a bad thing. Maybe that's the most profitable versus cutting our herd size down to a certain number and then cut, getting our hay, day, hay feeding days down. It's just a balance. And you know, so then I like the, the, the biggest struggle on top of that with now that the beef business is growing and we have the demand is just increasing the herd size, finding land. It's, that's the hardest oh, thing. Yeah. That is the main <laughs> limiting factor in my area is acquiring land, whether it be lease or purchase, just it's very difficult because land is super expensive here. At bare minimum, you're paying 10,000 an acre for raw land. Um, that's with no infrastructure, no fencing, no water. And the crop farmers, they, even for rent, they're paying 200 to $300 per acre for rent, which just doesn't pencil out for, for a beef business. Right. So we're really, uh, I've tried to think outside the box. We're trying to uh, find ways to acquire land or utilize land that maybe isn't desirable to crop farmers or other people, but it's pretty rare because then you're also, not only are you competing with the crop farmers, but 
you're competing with developers and stuff. When a farm goes for sale, you have oh, plenty yeah. of farmers in line, but you also have people that want to develop as well, and they, their their offers are usually higher than, than most farmers can afford. So, yeah, that that's been our yeah. our main struggle. Oh yeah, I can fully see that. Let's move away from struggles and talk about a couple of successes. What has been some of your biggest successes? I think just like I said, the the beef business has really been more than I expected. It's, I was unsure of how how well the quality of the beef would be. With we didn't have we started with a certain set of genetics more geared towards the cow calf operation, not necessarily for grass efficiency oh, yeah. or grass finished beef. Um, but just a little bit through selection and just our management and the quality of our forage and uh, through the soil improvement that the, the way that's improved our forage quality. I've been very satisfied and surprised and pleased with the quality of beef we're able to produce. And it's cool to see we have, like I said, we are seeing improvements in the soil and in the pasture and kind of everything. It's not just the, the cool thing about the whole regenerative agriculture and grass fed and all that stuff is it's not just like a one tier or like one focused area that you're seeing improvement on it's, it affects everything but the forage is has is higher quality the soil's improving our water infiltration's better we see birds showing up that weren't there before there, there's this summer we had a bird we had there was probably a hundred birds that followed the herd around every day they were eating flies and stuff and the animal health we don't we're cutting we don't worm don't obviously use any hormones and antibiotics on a regular basis just if we have a sick animal or something but uh, it's just it's really cool to see how much is affected by the type of management that we do from the whole ecosystem aspects it's been pretty cool Excellent. Webb, let's transition to the overgrazing topic where we take a practice or something about your farm and we're going to take a little bit deeper dive into it. And for today, we're just going to cover the subject of scaling. Sure. Yeah, so we uh, we know we've touched on it a little bit, but uh, we found the way that the business can expand through the beef sales or exploring those routes where we're trying not to put the cart before the horse, I guess is what I'm saying. We don't want to expand our right. herd and acquire more land and then not be able to sell any products. So we're trying to establish relationships where we know we're going to be able to sell all that we can produce and then, then scale from there. And the beef sales have grown every year since we started, so we're on a good trajectory there. And we're fortunate to be in an area where, like I said, that there's a fair amount of wealth and there's a good population. We're not far from pretty dense populations here. So shipping of beef and some challenges that people in like your type of regions face, we don't really have to deal with too much. I haven't yeah. even considered I haven't even considered shipping and I don't think we will until we get maybe way far down the road and have issues with demand locally first. But our biggest roadblock is like we said is acquiring land. So we're trying to work on things and figure out some outside the box ideas. There's actually within 15 miles of our farm, there's actually two different golf courses that have been abandoned for the past, the better part of a decade. And so that's something that has no use for a crop farmer. So I don't have the competition there. And it's really useless land to most people. It's, it would take a lot of money oh, yeah. for someone to turn it into something other than a golf course. But for me, I see it as a gold mine. It's, there's 200 acres of area that I can graze cows on. We put up some fence and some water and then and we can go to town. So we're working on some things like that. We're trying to f 
figure out if we can maybe develop some relationships with the crop farmers where if we can get them on board with some of this regenerative practices where they can plant some cover crops in the early fall, like interseed cover crops and corn and things like that, where we could graze, get some winter grazing on their lands when the crops are off. It just comes down to trying to have those conversations and educate those people that that's a win-win. We get some land to winter graze and they're going to get the added benefits of the fertility and the water infiltration and soil improvements and that type of thing. You know, it's just, it's just tough. And there, and it's, we're, I don't know if people have heard this and this is all over the country, not just our area, but the farming population is, you know, getting older. I think the average age of a farmer is well over 60 now or something along those lines. And, but it's, it's hard. It just seems like it's hard. Most of the farmers in my area, they, want to keep farming until they're dead pretty much it's not they're, yeah. they're not looking to retire when they're 50 and sell the farm and pass it on to like my generation it's the farming population is aging out in my area but none of them are letting go of land yet so i'm caught in the middle where i'm in my mid-30s now but it's, it's almost going to skip my generation where it's land is really not going to come available from the older generation until maybe my kids are getting older it's just it's hard to find anyone willing to give up land or sell land just that speaking on that land succession and selling an older farmer selling out i think that's it's a interesting topic i don't have any knowledge on and i wish i had more because two things you just said are really close to me we have two herds here i have my herd on lease land and then dad's got cattle on his land and I do all the labor for dad, but he's not interested in in selling the land to me or even leasing it to me at this point. He still wants his cows and stuff. Sure. And I can go one more generation. My grandpa's still got a farm. He's 97 and he's running cattle. Now my uncle's helping him, but it's just, it's interesting that mindset for farmers, they just keep going. And I tell my dad, he needs that. If he were to retire, I don't know what he would do. He needs that activity, but it's an interesting dynamic in agriculture that may not you may not see elsewhere. So that's interesting. A couple of things with the scaling that you had mentioned earlier in, you're sourcing out some animals or planning to, so that'll change your dynamics a little bit. And then you talked about you've approached some smaller businesses about or local businesses about selling your meat. How were those local businesses? Were they receptive to it? or skeptic, how was that? Yeah, I think they're receptive to it for sure because I think the more so that they have to uh, because the pressure from the consumers that are forcing their hand that they want local products. So yeah. that, that's very helpful is that the consumer is starting to, you know, be more on, in line with that. And one of the things for us is, this is actually the first podcast we've done. I'm happy to be able to put this out there to our consumer base here because it's, I think the lack of education is the biggest thing. There's several, we have several competitors in our area and I don't want to say competitors because I'm happy for people to buy local beef and support local farms anywhere, not just us. Um, right. But there's a difference there. As far as I know, we're one of the few in our region that actually are doing the regenerative thing and trying to, we're conscious of the environment and the soil and the land and trying to and all make all those improvements and so there's multiple other grass-fed operations around us that sell grass-fed beef but trying to inform the consumers and the public what we actually are all about and how we're different 
and what we're trying to do and that buying beef from us is more than just buying beef. You're, you're supporting a lot of other things. So, and I'd love to see more people do it. It's not that I only want us to be doing it and differentiate from everyone else. I'd love to, not just the consumers, but other farmers, I'd love everyone to get on board and be more in the same direction we are. But, but you know, I think that's going to help with these small shops, the people that are looking for local meats and stuff when they, I think it makes them feel good when not only like that they're, they know where they're beef's coming from. And that's why up to this point, I've enjoyed selling it just directly off the farm for the most part, because I meet all of the consumers that are buying our beef. So oh, they, yeah. they love driving up the farm and seeing the herd out there and they know that animal out there, where, right where it came from. It was born and raised there right to the end and that they know what they're getting and they know who it's coming from and, and all that. So that's a great selling point for, I, I highly recommend to any, anyone out there that's trying to sell beef, have people come to your farm, let them come see it, have open doors, and there's no better selling point than that. You can take it to the farmer's market and you can tell them this and that, but when they get to see it with their own eyes, man, you, you can't beat that. Yeah, I think you're right with that. When you talk to your consumers about your practices, do you find that they are receptive to that and they're very interested in that beyond just the beef? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't had a lot of customers really have that conversation with me. Most of them haven't really brought up the soil aspect of it or the environmental aspect of it. It seems like from them, for the most part, I have some customers that are adamant about it. They, they want to know, is it grass-fed and grass-finished? Because there's a lot of people out there now that are saying they're grass-fed, but they're still finishing on grain. And so, so they're more like oh, focused, yeah. they're more focused yeah. on the meat and the maybe the health aspect of the grass-finished versus they're starting to get educated on that. But there, it's very rare, actually, that I have any consumers know anything about like the regenerative practices and trying to not only improve the meat quality, but the quality of life for the animals and the environment and all of that. So that's something that definitely we need to push more and try to educate people on and get the conversation going for that. Because oh, yeah. I think it's, people will definitely appreciate it. Just an interesting tidbit on that. I work off the farm in education. And one of the teachers was telling me that she'd listened to one of the podcasts, which I thought was interesting because for the most part, my day job and my podcast and farm don't overlap greatly. I think everybody knows I have the farm and everything, but the podcast is a little bit different. But it was interesting just her her thoughts on it and on grass-fed and improving the land and soil health just the overall picture and she's very much a health conscious user making sure what her own kids eat and stuff she's very conscious about the source of everything so it's just very interesting i do think we got to do a good job or a better job of educating the public and getting our stories out there yeah absolutely Webb, it is time for us to do our famous four questions same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Question number one. What is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? My favorite book I'd say would have to be A Man Cattle Bell. Well, I'm going to butcher this oh, name, yes. but it's Johann, Johann Zeisman, I believe it is. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. It's old school and very practical. It really dives into the details of everything from breeding to grazing management and just ways to run your run your operation from a business standpoint to be efficient and profitable but as well as just a good steward of the animals and the land 
<clears throat> and there's, like I said, from a very practical standpoint, things that just make sense. There's no, there's no snake oil in there. It's very just detailed and proper ways to run a cattle operation from all aspects. Excellent selection there. Question number two, what is your favorite tool for the farm? I'd have to say it probably sounds cliche for most rotational grazers, but the poly wire reels and step-in posts for temporary fencing, I just it'd be impossible to do what we do without it. We're moving cattle now at a very minimum once a day, so a lot of times twice a day. And it's just, it, there's no way to do what we do without it. It's, you can adapt and change depending on the weather, the precipitation, the amount of cows that you're running, the amount of forage that's available, you can change the size of your paddocks every day and you can put in temporary lanes and to move cows wherever you want them, where to put the most impact. And there's just so many things that you can do, but you can, it makes your water infrastructure more versatile because you can find ways to get to water no matter where you're grazing without spending a lot of money putting up permanent infrastructure. So it just expands the things and the options that you can, it makes you so much more adaptive, which is what this is all about, because you have to change depending on what's going on. There's no, like we said before, there's no set in stone ways and it changes year to year, depending on the weather and the animals and everything. So that's by far just, I think that makes you the most versatile and adaptive program having those tools available and I can't imagine doing this type of grazing without that. Yeah, those tools make a tremendous difference in our ability to quickly put up temporary fencing, to move up, move cattle, livestock so quickly. Yeah, it'd be a whole different story with different tools right there. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? There's a lot of things I tell someone just getting started, but uh, you know, I think it's do your research, find out, set some goals of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do, and, you know, hear opinions and experiences from other people that have been doing it a lot longer than you have. Read, I've read hours and hours and watched hours and hours of videos uh, from people that have been in this for a while and just took their experiences good and bad and apply them to what I was doing and then you're still going to make mistakes you got to learn from them and don't be afraid to try stuff like I said I've, I've been done the same thing definitely not year to year and sometimes not even month to month and since I started it just constantly <laughs> changes I'm trying to improve it and you got to learn things but also just experiment you're sometimes you're going to do something and you're going to fail or maybe set you back a half a step but you know you'll learn from it and then you can take two steps forward so just do your research and learn as much as you can and you got to just do it. You can't be afraid to try things. Um, but then you don't have to, I'd say genetics aren't everything, but try to start with somewhat decent genetics. And when I say that, I don't mean you have to spend a fortune and go halfway across the country to buy a nice bull, but buy animals that fit what you're trying to do. Get a couple animals that and source them as local as you can. Animals that are made for your environment or thrive in your environment are going to do way better than an animal that you bought from a thousand miles away that's supposed to be the best bull in the country. It's get animals that you think are going to work and then select hard. you got to weed out the ones that don't work. And that's the quickest way, I believe, to maximize the efficiency of your herd and your profitability is keeping the animals that work and get rid of the ones that don't don't have a favorite cow that you're going to keep just because it's your favorite cow you got to 
have thick skin sometimes and you just got to do what's best for the business and best for the herd. Excellent advice. And you covered a lot of things there, but I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying there all the way down to genetics, getting them, getting some animals that are from your area will just speed up your progress a little bit. Be aware of that. And then, like you said, go back, watch videos, read. There's so much benefit, so many things out there to help you grow your knowledge. Yeah, just a side note on that too about learning. There's so many people in with the world, with the, the access we have now to people from all around the world that you can get instantly through, whether it be YouTube or Facebook or whatever it may be. We're very privileged to have that kind of knowledge. But oh, so, so, so take it all in and hear what people have to say and their experiences, but sometimes take it with a grain of salt. It's Don't, don't fall into like a, a cult mentality or something where it's – that's the way to do it and the only way to do it because it's not. No one's perfect and no one's got it figured out. But just take the good and the bad from everyone and kind of put it together and apply it the way any way you can and learn for yourself. That's what's going to get you the, the most out of it. Yes, exactly. Well said there. And lastly, Webb, where can others find out more about you? Yeah, so we're, our operation is Twin Cedar Farms and you can find us through that on pretty much all platforms. We have TwinCedarFarms.com and you can find us at Twin Cedar Farms on Facebook and Instagram. Feel free to anybody reach out, visit us, send me an email or a message and reach out. I'm happy to have conversations with you and I'm by far not an expert and I, I'm not going to solve your problems or give you all the answers. I'm happy to if any of you are smarter than me, which is probably a lot of you, feel free to reach out and give me advice. I'd love to hear it. And, I, and I'm always trying to learn and think of ways that I can improve or any, I'm happy to hear it. Webb, we appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. We've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to be here. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.